You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.net. We're going to start by reading some scripture. We have a Psalm of David that we're going to work on today, Psalm 23, 32 rather. Um, you got that up there, Luke? I should have different colors. Can you see the different colors? Oh, I appreciate that. I went to pastel one week and you couldn't tell the difference, you know. I prefer pastel colors anyway, but we'll go with the brighter. So there's basically two paragraphs, like pick a color and then read it out loud. You know what I mean? So we need one, two, three, four, five, six, seven volunteers. So we'll need people on Zoom to unmute and talk as well. So raise your hand, read one color, and then we'll skip. Amy, my friend, I hope, will help you. She'll pass the microphone to you when you you raise your hand to speak so that you can speak, so that people on Zoom can hear you. Um, And, you know, put it right up in your face and and speak into it, like I've been failing at doing for 12 years, you know. That's why they gave me this, because I can't, you know, sometimes you just have to admit defeat. Okay, someone, someone raise your hand. Who's going to read the first part? Jordan Burge. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Selah. Let's get someone on Zoom. There's a lot of you on there. that Danny? Nice. All right. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and brittle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
Thank you for that communal reading. Let's pray. Lord, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Forgiveness. Can you imagine? This psalm of David is about forgiveness. It's an invitation to imagine forgiveness. When was the last time you had to forgive somebody? How did it feel? What's it like to let go of how we've been harmed? What's it like to feel the fullness of our pain? Pain that was unjustly given to us and to forgive the person who did. I've been thinking about forgiveness a lot in the last several years. Hmm. Botham John was killed by Amber Geiger, is that her name? The cop that killed Botham John? Geiger. And Brant John forgave Amber at her sentencing, if I recall correctly. He was just 18 years old and forgave her right away. And I think that Brant's forgiveness was sort of weaponized, right? This is what you're supposed to do. You forgive right away. And Bottom's mother couldn't do it. She didn't criticize Brant. She just said, I can't. And I don't know what was happening with Brant, his younger brother, to be able to have that forgiveness. But we got to feel the whole pain. And that, to have your brother unjustly killed, that's a big, that's a lot of pain. Forgiveness is the capstone of our faith. It's what the cross is about. It's what communion is about. We confessed twice tonight. And we're offered this gift from God which makes us whole. But we can't cheaply offer it or receive it. We can, but it costs Jesus a lot to forgive us. It costs God a lot. And we, when we forgive one another, should feel the weight of that cost. David's done the worst of crimes. I'm going to give you a content warning again. Log off the call or mute the call or walk out of the room because I have to give you some gruesome details related to sexual assault. I'm going to give you a second to do that just to prepare yourself for it. And if you need to leave, I totally understand. Just a moment. Okay. David raped Bathsheba. killed Uriah using God's enemies. That's really wrong for multiple reasons. Yes, the rape. Yes, the murder. He sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against all of Israel. 
because he failed at being the king and allowed Israel's enemies to advance to cover himself. And allowed God's enemies to besmirch God. God forgives him. It's the height of evil, but God forgives him. But God's forgiveness of him doesn't mean that David lives a life without consequences. It just means that his life won't end in condemnation. David's still responsible for his actions. And he'll suffer consequences for it. His family will be torn apart. The second half of David's life is miserable. David's half-son, Amnon, rapes Tamar, one of David's daughters. And then Absalom, his other son that he had with Bathsheba, kills the half, the, the half, the half, his half-brother. And then Absalom tries to take the throne and tries to kill his dad. So like, that's pretty dysfunctional, the very least. Solomon, the child that David has with Bathsheba births, Solomon's the kid that David has with Bathsheba. And as Matthew notes in his genealogy, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, he names Bathsheba in the genealogy. He he refers to her as the wife of Uriah. But I think it's better to name her simply as Bathsheba. And we see that Jesus came from the womb of Bathsheba and her line. So after David debases and oppresses Bathsheba, Jesus still sides with her in his birth, giving her glory. So he is the son of David, Jesus, but he's also the son of Bathsheba. Anyway, Solomon, her last son, her son ends up being the last king of the United Monarchy, the United Kingdom of Israel. And his son, Rehoboam, is revolted against by Jeroboam, and the kingdom splits. They compete for power. So yes, God forgives David, but his life and his kingdom and his nation are torn apart. His actions still have consequences, some of which are incurred naturally, some of which are divinely sanctioned. Or maybe they're both divinely sanctioned, depending on how you view God. Forgiveness doesn't mean we won't suffer consequences. It means, as David writes, our sin is covered. Will you put up the uh, psalm again? Our sin is covered. We don't suffer condemnation or eternal um, iniquity. David's body is wasting away. He groans daily. His strength is dried up, and he finally confesses. He finally is forgiven. David finds a hiding place in God. God will preserve him. He is forgiven. But his deliverance comes at a cost. He'll bear responsibility for it. It will hurt, and his life will still have consequences. 
Sure, he's not stubborn like a horse or a mule. He understands now. His eyes are opened. He can see his own destructive behavior. He knows how to ask for forgiveness. The destruction of his life has meaning now. David doesn't totally get it, though. There's a psalm where David says, I have sinned against God and God alone, when he's talking about this sin, but he's sinned against much more than God and God alone. I think in that psalm, he refers to his loins are burning, which maybe means he contracted an STI during this whole thing. It's one, it's one possibility. Could be literal, you never know. So there's consequences for his actions. He's learning, he trusts in God, he receives God's steadfast love. But that doesn't evade consequences. The reason I'm saying this is because in this moment in time, in the country and in the world, and in the church too, I'm naming consequences as important because we often conflate, that is, put together forgiveness with lack of consequences. So if I suffer consequences from my actions, I'm not truly forgiven. And sometimes we see consequences as retributive, but maybe they're not. In other words, we think when we incur consequences, we haven't been forgiven. So I want to speak to that a little bit. I've been thinking about this for a while, writing about it. Some of you are, this could be an old dialogue you're having with me. I'm sharing my view. I hope that it stimulates you and you can respond with yours too. We don't have to, we don't, we're, 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 my uh, contribution to the dialogue is just that. So let's talk about forgiveness and how it works. After Desmond Tutu died, there's an article that came out in the New York Times. It really stuck with me. Now, where is the forgiveness and grace in cancel culture was the published headline, was, it was what it eventually became. It started with, we need to listen to Desmond Tutu about forgiveness. There's a Twitter account I follow that shows us how the headlines change. I'm very interested in this as a person. I have, so like, bear with me, okay? I know not everybody is. And my editor told me as much when I would have long sections in this forthcoming book about the newspaper, okay? Hobby horse of mine, I know. I like, I pay attention to the news. I pay attention to the newspaper. The newspaper doesn't just contain the news. The newspaper is news on its own. It's an artifact, right? It's interesting to me. How they frame issues, what's above the fold. You know, you have a broadleaf newspaper. And there's little headlines that just make it above the fold. They want you to see that when it's on the newsstand. What they decide to put there. It's hard online. It's hard to tell. It's not as it's kind of destroyed. Headline writing is also destroyed online because they're trying to have Google help them. So there's no more art in the headline writing. I could go on and on. So like what the Times does in particular writes the nation's headlines. It writes the world's headlines sometimes. So they changed Michael Eric Dyson's column headline here. And yeah, cancel culture is nice. It's commonly Googled, little clickbait situation. More people will read it. It's much more interesting than one about how Desmond Tutu forgave. So I understand the tantalizing need to do this. 
But it also does a disservice to the legacy of Desmond Tutu to locate his forgiveness during South African apartheid to how we might respond to cancel culture. Nevertheless, the headline does encapsulate some of Dyson's argument, which I'll address here. Here's the nut graph. Here's another journalist term. This is the main... Um, can you, will you get the next one? This is the main section of his piece. Advocates of restorative justice are suspicious of the self-righteousness that can fuel cancel culture. They want to encourage the, forg- that, the forgiveness that is a redemptive route to moral restitution. Forgiveness is not a weak ethical response to grave dangers. It's a calculated effort to ward off moral harm by anticipating the destructive impact of unforgiving attitudes, behaviors, and actions. This is his argument. Restorative justice is this. Retributive justice is this. Cancel culture is fueled by self-righteousness. So I wonder, you know, would Dyson have said to the prophet Nathan, who confronted David, you're guilty of self-righteousness. I wonder about that. And I want some, I, I have a strong opinion about this, and I want engagement from you about it later, okay? Dyson offers a utility to forgiveness. We forgive because it changes us. It protects us against resentment and potentially other issues, right? Ideally, forgiveness accompanies repentance, and reconciliation. However, they go together. And I think that the truest form of forgiveness happens when we reconcile with one another. We can certainly let go of harm against, done against us. But for restoration and redemption, forgiveness has to accompany repentance. Paul argues a whole different point about why we should treat our enemies with love. As Jesus instructs, he says, we treat them with love to heap burning coals on their head. That's pretty negative. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. It's an interesting phrase. He's saying, leave vengeance for God, but if you love them, it's like you're putting coals on their head. That seems to like, uh, be tied to vengeance a little bit. It's interesting that he says that. God's wrath, God's vengeance, God's justice will come for evildoers. Our job as Christians is to love our enemies. Doing so could enrage enrage them further, but we forgive to allow room for God's justice. God is the distributor of both punishment and grace. When Jesus forgives the paralytic or heals the paralytic in Mark 2, he is rebuked for doing something that is reserved for God alone. Jesus forgives, and the religious rulers say, you don't even have a right to forgive. Only God can forgive. When, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, he said to the paralyzed man, sons, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there and thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And the religious leaders are right. Only God can forgive, but Jesus is Lord. And so he is demonstrating his own divinity in this miracle. Jesus makes it clear that we forgive because we've been forgiven by God. We forgive because our debt to God has been forgiven. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes this even clearer. 
He makes a reciprocal relationship between our forgiveness and God's forgiveness. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And if you do, but if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus is telling us that forgiveness costs something. It's freely given to us, but it doesn't come without a cost to God. God offers us through the God offers us forgiveness through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's not transactional, strictly speaking, but it's an it's an offering. Repentance requires action, movement. Jesus acted on our behalf to offer forgiveness. But we, in turn, must act and call on others to do the same. In the column I was talking about, Dyson distinguishes restorative and and retributive justice. He's articulating the difference between bringing wholeness to an offender as opposed to punishing them. I appreciate the difference. I want to say that such a line is not easy to draw. These things are complicated. Sometimes the feelings of those who need to be restored become the center of our dialogue. And so if we think that the negative feelings that someone feels when they're convicted by a sin is retribution, it's a problem. We can expect the oppressed to be uncomfortable, even during restorative justice. Discomfort isn't condemnation. Feeling badly that we harmed someone isn't condemnation. And we should expect some discomfort when we are repenting of our wrongdoing. It shouldn't feel easy or good to do that. It should feel hard, it should feel sad, it should feel difficult. We should mourn, we should weep. I'm not necessarily telling you how to feel, but rather to expect it. Feel the pain of causing someone pain. Feel the remorse. That isn't retribution. We can't measure the efficacy of justice by the feelings of those who committed the wrongdoing. The opportunity for repentance is often there, even, even among the most hardline social activists. That's at least my experience of it. I've seen people who are very gracious be described as, you know, unloving, mean-spirited. And we gotta, like, it's, it's very hard to share your story to talk about how you've been harmed. Yes, in terms of racial abuse, but especially in terms of sexual abuse. And we measure the efficacy of our justice by the liberation of those who are oppressed. It's very hard to tell your story. 
creating, creating a fertile ground where we can do that is important. Being spoken back to in person or <laughs> on an email or online even, even if it results in pain, isn't retribution. Sometimes it's advocacy. Tyson says this, the moral intent of restoration is to create a flourishing community that acknowledges the wrong done, holds wrongdoers accountable, and invites them back into the community from their from which their offense estranged them. That's a beautiful image to me. That's the kind of community we want to create. So I'm with the professor when it comes to this. I like what he's saying. But yes, when we start acknowledging harm, when we start holding wrongdoers accountable, sometimes you might be accused of canceling somebody or being retributive. Even the fiercest advocates of justice should offer a moment for reconciliation. And in my experience, they do. Our criminal justice system doesn't. We just watched a whole hearing this week. I don't know if you're paying attention to the hearing, right? Public defender is now a Supreme Court nominee. And she's getting, I mean, very unfairly criticized for offering light sentences to like offenders of like child, child pornography and things like that, even though they're very run-of-the-mill stuff. I mean, I don't want to get into the politics too much, but the idea that you could forgive somebody, that you could lighten a sentence, that you could offer someone dignity, that they aren't the worst things they've ever done. You know, our carceral system doesn't allow for retribution. And the people who are fighting to change that are the ones being accused of cancel culture. I mean, that's just, that's just warped thinking to me. No, people actually want to change it. We want to change the re retribution. You know, our criminal justice system is retributive. There is reason to change that. You know, in general, our police state is not restorative, it's retributive, and ineffective in many ways. So I want to say clearly, right? Anti-oppression fights retribution. You know, we can't talk about grace and compassion and justice without saying Black Lives Matter. And, a modern, and our dichotomy between retribution and restoration falls short. Too often people equate retribution with public confrontation and restoration with private confrontation. But that's also wrong. Private offenses maybe should be um, countered privately, but public ones should be addressed publicly and require public confession. This is a hard pill to swallow. Okay? After a, a reporter for the city paper wrote a very positive article about Circle of Hope in 2013, some LGBTQIA members that were a part of the church and were kind of at, forced to leave because of our lack of affirming theology at the time, we are now fully affirming. 
so you know, responded and said, hey, my experience at this church wasn't positive. I felt silenced, I felt muted, and then I felt kicked out. I was complicit personally in that wrongdoing. I was 21 when this incident happened, and then I was a little bit older when it was published in the newspaper. Okay. Really hard time for me to have this published. I guess I could have said, this, this term wasn't coined yet, but I could have said this is cancel culture. And at the time I was upset, I have to admit, it didn't feel good, it felt painful, it felt difficult. I didn't know what to do. And I wasn't the only one involved, but I was one of the people. And there was a lot of defensiveness. You know, a lot of people even came to my defense. Even in the article, the people that were offended said Johnny was just following orders. You know, that's, that's also interesting to me. But I, I, wanted to, I, I eventually had an opportunity to take responsibility for what I did. Um, I saw one of the guys at a Christmas party in like 2017. And I was like, I guess I could avoid him, but let me just walk up to him. And I said, hey, his name is John. I'll tell you his name because it's in the paper. I said, hey, John, I'm really sorry for what happened those years. I caused you a lot of pain, and I wish I didn't. He didn't apologize back to me. He didn't have anything back to say. That was, that was okay. And that was at least, I mean, he actually, that was a moment for reconciliation. I didn't, I didn't get to reconcile with everybody that I harmed in this process, but that was at least one person. And Andy and I, the other guy, are still, I don't know, we still relate, kind of. I mean. And you could look at getting your name printed in the newspaper as retribution. But it could be a call to repentance. It could be a call to confession. It was uncomfortable. It was difficult. But eventually, God, I mean, God moved in me to say, no, you, you can actually take a step. And, and you know, confession and public confession, which I'm, I, in some way I'm doing now, but I've done in the past, isn't a ticket to freedom necessarily. Some people will not forgive you. Some people will still be upset. And that is within their right, you know. You can't force the forgiveness. You can't force the reconciliation. But we can do our part and have a humble posture. If, you have, if, if we have a humble posture about this, it may feel less painful. But if you're recalcitrant and don't want to change, it may hurt even more. I don't think that what happened to me those years ago was retributive. I think that what, what I participated in was where the sin was. And I'm thankful that Circle of Hope has moved in the direction to affirm and love LGBTQIA people and create a space for them in our church. Things are changing. It's good. Like tonight, during, there's a mapping meeting where we're specifically listening to LGBTQIA people speak about our map and help move it. In, in, uh, and we're elevating their voices to try to hear them. Um, that posture shift was... In some ways, fairly rapid, but also too slow. There was people hurt along the way. But we, have a, we had a choice to make. And people who are confronted of wrongdoing, like David was, have a choice to make too. David still had consequences in his life for raping Bathsheba, for killing Uriah, for using God's enemies against God. 
And just because he's forgiven doesn't mean that those things were taken away. And just because Circle of Hope is moving in a better direction now, or me, doesn't mean that my life will be free of consequences. The harm that I did, the harm that we did still affects people. And it affected a lot of people. Listening to the victims of our harm is important. Centering the experience of those who harmed silences the victim. So if I were to center my feelings and say, hey, my high school debate partner that I went to Latvia and Estonia with my freshman year wrote this article about me and he was just being mean and I just centered my feelings about it, I would be displacing the feelings of those I harmed. So receive the injury and allow them to speak. So if you want to talk about the follies of retribution, we can do that. Let's start with the Nuremberg trials and Chauvin's murder trial. Let's find out if we can change that. That's where retribution happens. What does forgiveness look like there? It's hard to do that. The reason I mentioned those things is because, yes, the Holocaust was one of the worst things that happened. Okay, but if you want to talk about changing how we do this, start where it doesn't seem practical to you to start, not where you are injured through the retribution. Because those are examples of retribution that nearly everyone praises despite their violence. And that's where I'm convicted. But starting with what social activists are doing is transparently partisan. An argument made to advance a particular talking point. Start with police brutality. Start with the incarceration system and other forms of violence that minorities are burdened with. Not those fighting against those things. So yeah, we often write hagiographies, uh, saintly stories about people, our prophets, like Tutu, like Martin Luther King. But yeah, those people might even be seen as retributive today. A prophet is always hated in their hometown, so pay attention to who we are against now. As much as we want to idolize Tutu for being opposed to cancel culture, He took a side. To be impartial is indeed to have taken sides already with the status quo, is what he said. Tutu is calling us to change the world by taking a side of the oppressed. Maybe that's cancel culture, maybe that's retribution, but I I think that's the gospel. Let's say a prayer and then do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to be forgiven. May we feel the weight of our wrongdoing and how we've harmed one another and repent of it. Cover our sins. Spare us from condemnation. Help us to feel what we need to feel in how we've injured one another. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.